We've been talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit more particularly in, at work in us. I mean, when you think about that, uh, it's a momentous reality. The Holy Spirit is at work in me. He's at work in you. The Bible tells us as Christians that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God puts his spirit in us and he seals us. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That means the the fullness of life. Jesus says in another place, I came that you should have life and have it to the minimum. No, to the full, huh? That means presently here and ultimately in all eternity, life that you and I can't even imagine. The bottom line is the Holy Spirit lives in us. The third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. When he comes and lives in us, when he takes up residence in us, he doesn't just come in as a house guest, sit down, put his feet up on the coffee table, and take over the remote. (laughs) He comes in because he has work to do. How many would agree that they need to be worked on? <laughs> worked in. <laughs> yeah, all of us. You know. So he comes, he comes, and he begins to do work in us. And we've been parsing that work. We've been uh, un- unwrapping, if you will, the, the work that he does. And we've talked about uh, three aspects of that work. We still have more to talk to, uh, uh, talk about. First thing he does is he comes in and he, what does he do? He assures us. See, aren't you glad that I'm redundant? He assures us. Now, what does he assure us of? What do we need assurance about? That we belong, huh? That we are actually adopted into his family. Well, how, how do you know? I just know. I, I can't tell you, except now the, word, the Bible gives me the words. The Holy Spirit has witnessed to my spirit, has testified to my spirit that I am. I know that I know. It's not just only some amorphous, subjective thing. It's based on fact. I can put a name to it. I can label it. The Holy Spirit has witnessed to my spirit. I am adopted. I am a child of God. It's undeniable. So the first thing he does, he assures us. And we all need assurance, don't we? We all need assurance. The second thing he does is to what? Free us. He frees us. He frees us from this compulsion to have to somehow deserve or earn that acceptance. I'm not good enough. Hallelujah. You're right. None of us are good enough. It's not a matter of our being good enough. It's just a matter of his his sovereign choice. I've chosen you. And he frees us from that compulsion to have to work 
for acceptance. I remember when we were in India a number of years ago, and uh, we were out on the streets witnessing and talking to people, and it, it was just it was all very exciting. And uh, I came upon this man who was collecting coconuts, picking up coconuts, and it wasn't premeditated. It was just. I just inquired. I just asked him. I said, what are you doing? It was obvious. He was picking up coconuts. So what are you doing? He says, I'm collecting coconuts. I said, what for? He says, because I have to offer them to my God for forgiveness for my sins. Wow. I had no category for that, so it was interesting to learn that. Then I asked him a question. I said, well, how many coconuts do you need? (laughs) To which he didn't know. There was no certainty. He said, I I just try to get as many coconuts as I can. So, so, So as many coconuts... As you can amass, you take to the temple and you offer to your God in hopes that you be forgiven. You really have no assurance, do you? No. I said, what if I told you? Now, and, and this plays right into Hindu theology because they believe in many gods, typically. I said, what if I told you there was a God who has already collected enough coconuts for you? So you have to contextualize these things. He said, there is such a God? I said, yes. I said, he is the supreme God, the absolute supreme God. There's no God above him, no God equal to him. He is the God. What is his name? Jesus. Jesus. He became a Christian. He professed belief in Jesus. He knew he was a sinner. And there was this need driving him to find forgiveness. He had no assurance. He was all very iffy. But when I told him that Jesus would free him from that, he'd already, already, already paid all the coconuts for all of his sins. I want that. He assures us. He frees us. Thirdly, he what? Empowers us. He empowers us. He empowers our life. How many many feel weak most of the time? You face God's requirements. You know what's required of you. Uh, You're going, oh, man. Most of the time, we don't want to get up in the morning. Truth be known. He empowers us. You don't always feel the power. It's not like you're going, you know, the inner, inner, what is it, the little bunny rabbit? Energizer, yeah. It's just, his power is there. He empowers us. He empowers us particularly to obey him. 
Paul phrases it this way. He says, I, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. How does he give us the strength? By his indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the power. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that power this morning. That power given to us is not limited only to that which we need to obey. Certainly it's inclusive of that. It's not the power that we sometimes see in the Old Testament with uh, people like Samson or Saul or David, or although it's inclusive of that. I want, to, I want to look at this power from a little different perspective. Now, in your notes, I didn't phrase it this way, but I rewrote my notes, so I'm going to give you the new phrase, new statement, so you have to write it down. When you think about the power of the Holy Spirit in us, it is the powerful application. What is it? The powerful application to the lives of believers of the character of Christ. It's the powerful application to the lives of believers of the character of Christ. Now think about that. When Paul describes the conflict between the spirit and the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, we looked at that last time. This Christian freedom that he advocates in that passage is defined by the character of Christ. I don't make myself like Jesus. It takes a power beyond me to bring my character into line with that of Jesus. And it's by the Holy Spirit, this this powerful, victorious Holy Spirit. He is going to have his way. How many know that? You can kick against the goads, you can fight, you can argue. But I promise you, he is going to have his way. Because he's God. This Holy Spirit, this powerful, victorious Holy Spirit who lives in us, who can indeed keep our sinful natures nailed to the cross, He's like a seed. He's like a seed planted in the, in the very soil of our lives. If that seed is cultivated, nurtured, nourished, if you will, it will grow into a beautiful, bountiful, fruitful tree. May I call your attention once again to Psalm 1. The first three verses, blessed is the man 
who does not what walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers, depending on which translation you're reading. But his delight is where? His delight is in the Word of God. His delight is in the Word of God. At this juncture, you can ask yourself a question. Do I really delight in God's Word? Now, what does it mean to delight in God's Word? To delight in it means that you would count it so precious that you would spend time there. In His Word, in His law, this blessed man meditates day and night. Well, that's impractical. See, I have to go to work. I have to do this. I have to do that. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about you always got your nose in the book, literally, physically. What, it, what he's talking about is that the book is in you. That you spend time when you're in the Word, you read, you meditate. I tell people, whatever you read, take one verse, just memorize one key verse and take it with you throughout the day. Rehearse it throughout the day. Meditate on it. It means think about it. You can do that when you're driving. You can do that when you lay down uh, to go to sleep at night. My discipleship group is memorizing right now the Sermon on the Mount. And I just tell them, just, just add one verse a day, one verse a day. Before I know it, you have all three chapters memorized. And as you lay in bed at night, just rehearse it. Just go over it and over it and over it. And the more we do that, the more we find ourselves actually delighting in the law, in the word of the Lord. Now notice what he says next. Because he doesn't do this and because he does this, he shall be like what? A tree. A tree that is kind of wobbly, easily blown over. A tree that is what? Firmly planted by streams of water. And it yields its what? Fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does prospers. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's all a product of, of two things. It's a product, one, of what the Holy Spirit does in the man, but it's also a product of what the man does to cooperate. This idea of nurturing, this idea of cultivating, if you will, the life of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 tells us clearly what the fruit is, describes the fruit. Paul gives us understanding and insight. He says the fruit really is simply a description of the character of who? You want to know about the character of God, the character of Jesus? Look right to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, the preeminent Aspect of the fruit. Now, now notice, it's not fruits. 
fruit. Love, joy. Read this with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Can anybody use a little self-control? A little bit more? How about some love? How about a little bit more joy? How about some patience? (laughs) Those are not things that you and I work hard to generate. I'm going to be more loving today. Please, not around me. (laughs) No, that's a product. That's a product of what God does in us as we cooperate with Him, as we trust Him. And all of this simply is a a description of Jesus' own character. A holy God requires His people to be, what do you think? Holy. He says time and again, you shall be holy because I am holy. That's not a grievous thing. It's glorious. I want to be like you. You bid me to become like you. And you're at work in me so that I become like you. The God who calls us to holiness doesn't leave us to our own devices. He gives us His Spirit to enable us to fulfill that requirement of holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, listen to Paul's words. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject men, but God, who gives you his spirit. In other words, there's no way I'm going to grow in holiness apart from His Spirit at work in me. (coughs) Christian holiness involves devotion. It involves devotion. It's it's like the man who is committed to meditating on God's Word day and night. It requires devotion. Devotion to God through Jesus Christ. That's the key part. Through Jesus Christ. You can't just say, well, I believe in God or I'm devoted to God. Well, you can say it, but you have to complete it. You have to qualify it. I'm devoted to God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no access to the Father but through Him. Christian holiness involves devotion to God through Jesus Christ. And it also involves conduct. Our conduct. Christian devotion springs from an an allegiance to Jesus, who himself is the the embodiment of the ideal of, of human life and conduct. He was the perfect human, the perfect man. He's our model, he's the one that we follow. We're followers of Jesus. We we exhibit an allegiance to Jesus. 
Those things which are characteristic in his life, stressed throughout the New Testament, are the very qualities that the Holy Spirit seeks to produce in us, in our life, in our conduct. In other words, there should be some evidence there. There should be growing evidence there. It should be more and more visible in our life, the character of Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit's work. His power is brought to bear so that his character is seen in us. That's glorious. Remember when Jesus came, one of the, among the very first things he said when he came, he said, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingly rule, Jesus proclaiming it, and clearly demonstrating it through his life, he says is not a matter of mere externals. God's kingly... Remember the Pharisees? What did they do? They were all into externals, weren't they? And Jesus castigated them. He, he told them, he says, he says, you're missing it. The most important parts... In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says, it's not a matter of externals, not a matter of what we eat or drink. He says it is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can't fake righteousness. Well, you can, but not genuine righteousness nor peace, nor joy. It's got to be by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be actively at work in our life for us, regardless of whatever kind of a situation we're in. Things can be crashing in around us in our life. But because we're devoted to Him, His Spirit bears fruit in our life. Trials are inevitable, but misery doesn't have to be. And all these, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, would you agree with me that they were richly, richly displayed in Jesus' life? So we learn from Him, we watch Him. Wow. That's how I'm becoming. That's where I'm going. Can't you hardly wait to get there? Well, you're only going to get there when what? Either you die or (laughs) He comes back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul, in writing to them, reminds them that that when when they received the word, they received it with great joy. And the preaching of the word was with power. Listen to his words here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Brothers, loved by God, we know that He has chosen you. How do we know this? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Something powerful is going on there. 
The Holy Spirit was at work. We know God's chosen you. And then he says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of, now notice this, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In other words, look, he, he juxtaposes what? Severe suffering and what? Joy. But joy given by the Holy Spirit. They received it. Holy Spirit, when the word was preached to them, it came with power. The Holy Spirit and conviction. Miracles. People's lives were transformed and they became imitators of the Lord in spite of the great suffering that they were experiencing. And there was great joy in their life. Joy. Which allowed them to transcend the suffering. In First Peter chapter four, verse fourteen, again, Peter identifies the spirit with suffering. He says, "If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed." So, if you're blessed, you should what rejoice, right? You are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Wow. So instead of saying, poor me, poor me, poor me, we rejoice because we're blessed because the spirit of God rests on us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of false things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Why? It's because the Holy Spirit enables me to rise above that. Humanly speaking, it's practically impossible. Isn't that true, to rise above that stuff? We get embittered, we get our feelings hurt, we get angry, resentful. And then we quit. Most of us know what that's like. Just as Jesus' life was the embodiment of God's love, so we find that the Holy Spirit is particularly given to believers to live out God's own love in our loveless lives. They say, well, wait a minute. My life is not loveless. Yes, it is. If it wasn't, God wouldn't have to pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit he's given you. He knows the deficit. He knows the need better than we do. We're always busy justifying ourselves. But I'm a good person if you just knew me. Right? We don't say, you know... If the truth be known, I am loveless. I am selfish. I'll love those who love me. And Jesus says, so what? Even the pagans do that. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And God pours His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit's given to us. Obviously, He knows that we need it because we don't have it naturally. And we all understand what it, what it requires to love somebody who doesn't love us, who despitefully uses us, who talks about us behind our back, who betrays our confidence, our trust. Right? Uh, I want to kill him. <laughs> Love. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul rejoices to hear of that love in the Spirit which was reported to him regarding the Colossian believers. Let me read this to you. This is, this is marvelous. Colossians chapter 1. You might want to just turn there with me. Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. Just read with me the first eight verses here. Try to imagine Paul's joy at getting this report. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. This is a report. We've heard about this. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is producing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Holy Spirit. Paul, let me tell you about these people. They're amazing. The love of the Holy Spirit is just so palpable in their lives and in their fellowship. They love one another. It's amazing, Paul. You should see these people. How do you think Paul would respond to that? Oh, God, thank you. (laughs) So important is this quality of love in the Holy Spirit. That the Apostle Paul, again, smack in the middle of his dissertation on spiritual gifts, three chapters, the central chapter, he devotes to the subject of what do you think? Turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. He really is suggesting that love is the crowning gift in the midst of a discussion on gifts. It's the crowning gift. Turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, love is the crowning gift. 
I did that to help some of you stay awake. <laughs> now, at the end of chapter 12, he just finished his discussion on spiritual gifts. He described a, a number of uh, what we would call power or charismatic kinds of gifts. And he says in the last verse, verse 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. So uh, don't major in all the minor things as people typically do, but desire the greater gifts for the building up of the body. And then he says, uh, but now I'll show you a most excellent way. He says, if I speak in tongues, because he's just described tongues. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a noisemaker. And all of us know what noisemakers are like, right? Blah, 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 blah. And you want to go, oh, my gosh. But if there's love there, if the talking is marked by love, He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Big deal. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is paramount. It's the most excellent gift. You can have all these gifts. You can do stuff. But love is characteristic of relationship, isn't it? There are going to be many, many, many people, Jesus says, who come at the last day and say, Lord, Lord. He says, never did I know you. We never had a relationship. You didn't love me. You didn't love me. Yeah, but I did this, I did that. and Away from me, you doer of evil, not you doer of good. That is the most terrifying passage in the Bible. Is my work, is my life marked by this most excellent way? Or am I just to be about getting my way, making my opinion known. Love. And then he characterizes love. Love is patient. Ooh, that's the first thing about it. <laughs> How do you know you love? Because I'm patient. <laughs> love is patient, he says. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. There's a good one. It keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, man. I mean, i got to tear up my list. You say you love me, but you keep a record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never, what? Fails. You only have to substitute the name of Jesus for that word love in that passage. Isn't that true? And you see the whole thing is really a picture of his way of life. And by extension, it's becoming a picture of the way of life of us. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, we can grow impatient with ourselves. We can grow impatient with each other. That's part, of the, that's part of the tension of living in the already and the not yet. Isn't that true? But the reality is, is that we're all in this process. We're all in this continuum. And the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, I know that some of us would wish he would work a little more quickly in the lives of some. The first and the foremost fruit of the Spirit is that outgoing love for others. Premier, the most excellent way, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. This is what marked the giver of the Spirit in his earthly life, isn't it? He loved us. We spit in his face. Some of us still climb up, we prop a ladder up against the cross. We climb up against, against that, against that cross on our ladder and we just boom, 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 spit in his face, say, no. No, I'm going to do my own thing. We walk down off that ladder. True holiness. The true holiness into which the Spirit calls us is nothing other than Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning of verse 7, Paul is going to contrast the glory of the law with the glory of of the righteousness of Christ. And then he's going to say that, that point us to the glory on Moses. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain? Got the law. Came down off the mountain. His face went vuba, vuba, vuba. Glowed. And then the, 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 the glow faded. Oh, well, just listen. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, what ministry brought death? The law, remember? Uh, Paul says in another place, the letter kills. You can't get life by keeping the law. The law only stirs up sin. The very commandment, Paul says in Romans 7, he thought it was meant to prevent life, actually brought death. It killed him. Sin sprang to life. He says, I died when the law was brought to bear in his life. 
So he says, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so the Israelites could not look easily or steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading as it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men, meaning the law, is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings what? Righteousness. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which, notice this, of that which what? Which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. I had the occasion to talk with a a young Jewish girl uh, last week about spiritual things and about faith and about what does she believe? And, and she doesn't know what she believes. And, and it comes down to, like so many Jewish people today, they're cultural. Their Judaism is a cultural thing. And most do not know, really don't even have a clue, uh, the, the deep, rich meanings in the holidays, let alone the scriptures. I remember when Moran first came here. And uh, eight, nine years ago, ten years ago maybe, uh, a, a, a disaffected, angry, uh, atheistic, Israeli young man. God brought him here. I'm preaching out of the book of Hebrews. How many remember that? That interminable book. And I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about how, how God just spanking them. And he just, after, he just can't stand it. He comes up after the service and says, in my face. And I said, excuse me, go read your scriptures. Go read the history of your people. Go read the history they have with God. And, don't, and then come back and tell me that God doesn't spank them again and again and again and again and again. Because of their own recalcitrance. Well, you know what? He took me up on that. He had enough integrity to go actually read it. Came back and says, you're right. (laughs) Became a believer. And now he's over in Israel and creating all sorts of problems. (laughs) Thankfully. Keep him in your prayers. Keep him in your prayers. Even to this day, verse 15, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Many of you know that I was raised Roman Catholic. And so, you know, as you're Catholic, you're really taught the fundamental doctrines. You don't really know them and understand them. You're just taught, you know, the virgin birth, Jesus is God, the Trinity, and... You Catholics know what I'm talking about, right? And I, 
I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Church every Sunday. It was just irrelevant. I was a cultural Christian until I got saved, until the veil was lifted from my eyes. And I thought, how long has this been around? (laughs) My mom thought I was in a cult. Those born-agains. Foursquare. Say, Amy, what's her name? And I don't know any of that stuff. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just excited. God lifted the veil. I didn't even know about a veil. I just, my eyes are open. I was dead. I was blind, but now I see. That's all I knew. I said to her mom, have you ever, ever heard me say, I love going to church? Well, no. So I had to drag you. Have you ever, ever heard me say this? I love Jesus. No. Oh, Mom, I love Jesus. I love going to church. I'm born again. I'm saved. I'm different. And I had the privilege not too long after that to lead her to Jesus myself. Wonderful. I finally found out where it says in the Bible, you must be born again, John 3, 3. I didn't even know that. Somebody pointed it out to me. Ooh, ooh, it's there. I hot-footed it to my, my, my parents' house. I said, Mom, look at this. Open it up. John 3.3 says, you've got to be born again, Mom. That's in your Bible. <laughs> and a stroke of genius, I, I said, wait right here. I drove to the Catholic bookstore, got a official douay Reims version of the Bible, <laughs> took it back to her. I said, open it up to John 3 3. She opened it up to John 3 3. I said, what does it say? You must be born again. I said, Mom, you need to be born again. I prayed with her right there to receive Jesus. What a joy. Whole new world has opened up for my mother. She's complaining because she's. Somehow the bookstore messed up. She's not getting my CDs. She says, I love going to sleep listening to you. You're not the only one, Mom. (laughs) Verse 17, now the... (laughs) I'm not going to let you luxuriate in that too long. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom... And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says that God has revealed Himself not intermittently, as he did with Moses and the others in the Old Testament. 
He's revealed himself now steadily with unwithdrawn accessibility. We can access the throne of God with confidence. Under the new covenant, the Lord has made himself present with his people by his spirit. And his presence is constant. It's steady. Unwithdrawn. We don't say with David, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David witnessed God taking his spirit off of Saul, his predecessor. David, in the midst of his own sin and guilt, cries out, do not remove your Holy Spirit. You know what? We don't pray that. Although we sing it sometimes erroneously. Because why? His spirit will never be withdrawn from us. The divine presence that was concentrated in Christ and made available through his death and resurrection became available to us to transform us. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we worship him, as we reflect on his character as it's brought to us through the word and more particularly through the gospels, our faces will in fact shine as Moses' face shined when he went in to seek the presence of the Lord. And the glory will not fade from our lives as it did from Moses. It will only, Paul says, increase. The glory will increase. The glory will increase. We can anticipate the glory increasing. God's purpose is to change us by his spirit within us. Literally, to transform us from one degree of glory to another. And the word glory, if you will, indicates the very person and the character of God. That God be more seen in us. That His character be more seen in us. That's what He means by that glory. If we want to see the glory of God, we see it in the face of Jesus, and we see it in the face of one another as we're growing. In Christ, the glory of God shines out in human form. John says it in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. We've seen the the person and the character of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul writes, The God of the sage has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Beloved, so the work of the Spirit in us, believers, is above all to transform us from one degree of glory to another, or in other words, to make us more and more like Jesus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the Holy Spirit is said to be the one who not only regenerates us, but also renews us. And this work of renewal of our nature is stressed again by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, keep in the forefront of your mind God's mercy to you. And in view of that mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him, which is how you worship God with all of your life. And don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That transformation, that renewing, 
is something that happens to us. It's not something that we do. They're both participles in the Greek. They're not active. They're passive participles, meaning something happening to us. It's the Holy Spirit who renews my mind. It's the Holy Spirit who transforms my life and makes me like who? Jesus, more and more and more. Paul explains in Colossians chapter 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. If you're ever at a loss for something to read, read Colossians chapter 3. He talks about what it means to be in Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts and then also set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, that's the, that's the kind of the, the overarching statement. Our affections, our minds. Set them where? Lift our sights. Typically, we, we want to set them set our affections and our minds on things below. He says, lift them up. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, this is who you are, therefore you ought to be lifting your sights. Does that make sense? He says, now notice this, verse 3, or verse 5. Put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put it to death. This is a very strong term in the Greek text. Put it to death. Slaughter it. Murder it. Kill it. Be brutal. No mercy. Put it to death. Put to death, he says, sexual immorality. Put to death impurity, lust, evil desires. Put to death pornography. Do you know that in a, in a group this size, statistically, the statistics, all the studies, again and again and again, say that a preponderance of men, Christian men, on any given day in any given congregation are involved in pornography. I don't want to believe that. That thought's abhorrent to me. I want to believe that our men are much above that. But statistically, it says that's not true. Statistically, Christian men are no different from men in the world. If that describes you, if you're in any kind of of lustful, immoral, uh, unclean... Stop it. Today, in anticipation of the Lord's table, put a stake in the ground this morning and say, no more. Put it to death. Because you can. Because you have the ability given to you by the Holy Spirit. The question is, do you really want to? No more whining. Put it to death. Today, this morning, no more. 
I'm going to set my heart and my mind on things above, not on things below anymore. Put it to death. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus said, no murderer, no liar, no thief, no adulterer is going to enter into heaven. You and I have no basis to say, well, you know, I I know I do this, but God forgives me. I'm already sorry when I do it. And I go back and say, God forgive me. You need to go read your Bible again. You're an adulterer. Plain and simple. If you continue, you are not getting into heaven. I'm telling you right now. Jesus says to you, like he'll say to many others, never did I know you. You never set your mind and heart on things above. You just faked yourself out. Stop it. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the, in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other anymore, since you've what? You've taken off the old self without its practices. And you put on the new self. You put on a new set of clothes. You took off those old dirty clothes. You put on some brand new clothes. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How many are glad that God forgave you? Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts towards God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wow. That just all kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? It's the work of the Spirit. To make us progressively reflect the very character of Jesus, who we will look like this. The process of being made like Jesus, the process of Christ-likeness, is a progressive one. Let's not be fooled in thinking any of us have arrived. Paul himself, after decades of knowing Christ, after decades of walking with Jesus, could still say that he had not obtained the purpose to which Christ Jesus took hold of him. He was still pressing on. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. He says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Nothing mattered. 
Paul had grown to a place where nothing really mattered, nothing really compared to knowing Christ. Everything else was rubbish. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of suffering and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. How could he possibly say that? Except that in his own life, he saw more clearly than ever before how preeminent Jesus is. How he wants him more and more and more. Things just begin to fall off. So it doesn't matter. I'll share, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know him so intimately. I want to share in his sufferings. We don't say that. We don't say that. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of, of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I could care less about what's behind. I could care less about this stuff. I have one goal. I'm straining toward what is ahead, straining to the goal to win that prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And you know, the older Paul got, he began more and more to feel the signs of decay in his own mortal body, didn't he? Listen to what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Some of you might be able to relate to this. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Some of you, have you noticed getting out of bed is a little harder in the morning? Getting up out of the chair, the joints don't move as quick. Oh, man, that's stiff. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit says he's doing this in me. For our, <laughs> our light and momentary troubles. How are you doing today? Great. Any problems? Nah, just a few light and momentary troubles. Ah, it's got some light and momentary troubles. Nothing, nothing serious. <laughs> for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. The Holy Spirit is given to us to transform us. So that the character of Jesus might be revealed in us that we may be holy because he is holy. But that process will not be complete until we see him as he is. And that will not happen until we pass off the scene or he comes back. We anxiously await either one of those. John writes this, dear friends. Now we are children of God. But what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
love of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us. Not only that we might obey Him, but He empowers our life. That He may apply the character of Jesus Christ. That the character of Jesus may be formed in us who believe. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen? Father, we thank you. We worship you this morning. As we prepare for your table, Lord, we pray and ask that you would minister to us, each one, as we turn our hearts more fully towards you. Have your way in us, Lord. Have your way in us. Thank you. Amen.